Hi, I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. If y'all had a magical amulet, would you uh, make people watch Deep Cut? <laughs> no, because you can't watch a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I keep forgetting this is a non-visual medium. <laughs> make them listen to it over, over, and over, and over again. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. This episode, we're going to cover Eric Romero's 1972 Love in the Afternoon, or as it was more commonly known when it was released, Chloe in the Afternoon. Oh! (laughs) Interesting. And this is my... First of two deep cut picks for Romare. I'm quite excited to talk about this. Uh, I haven't thought about it for a while until I rewatched it recently. Yeah, I feel like we should just launch right into it. Also because Wilson literally just watched it. I yeah, I'm freaking out, man. Just watch a Let's React <laughs> of you watching the ending. <laughs> I just over video call watched him watch the ending. How was that, Ben? How was that experience watching me watch the ending? <laughs> Pretty interesting. <laughs> Three stars. <laughs> wow, um, not even four. <laughs> yeah, so maybe just start with what are both of y'all's general reactions to this film? I'm so fresh, but that was like scary as shit, man. You are fresh. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, that was like, it's sort of like this guy's worst nightmare. Um, <laughs> and it sucks because he's so ugly. <laughs> 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 i'm like my dude you you can't be pulling all these women like how is this possible you like like how is this possible as you as this this man can 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 seduce and flirt with so many willing beautiful women when you're looking like that and he's wearing turtlenecks that are don't even like make him look more attractive wait i i like the turtleneck look <laughs> What does it say about me? (laughs) (laughs) Different priorities, Ben. Um, But a really, really, really interesting movie in Robert's filmography. I think because the context of this being the last of the the moral tales that he did, he sort of wanted to push it as far as he can with the, the main situation of a man stuck between a woman he's professed his love for or like already made a commitment for and another woman. And I think that premise, he, he just like takes it to the very limit in this film. And I applaud Eric Romero for doing that. I found Love in the Afternoon pretty harrowing. It is a very mundane moment by moment chronicling of the main character, Frederic almost having an extramarital affair. And Romare is very unsparing with the realism and down-to-earth of his fantasies and what he's doing and really holds him to task for his actions and for acting on his feelings. So in a sense, it's very pessimistic about the worst impulses of men. At the same time, I appreciate the optimism of the ending when Frederick returns to his wife, Helene. But not just that, It is the catharsis that comes from that turn because you spend the whole movie very stressed about Frederic and this question of, is he going to cheat on his wife? And the moment that he returns to Helene and instead of acting on his feelings, talks out his feelings with Helene, it's really a big release. And I found it both intellectually and emotionally satisfying and stimulating. And I thought it was a really great movie. I have to laugh because I feel like Eli and I have very different takeaways for the ending. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Me too. (laughs) But with the same level of catharsis. But your reading is completely valid. Thank you. It's just (laughs) different strokes. This was the second Romare movie I saw, I think. Uh It kind of perked me up a little bit. And at the end, I was like, wait, hold up a minute. So that's kind of what really pushed me down the let me devour every Romare film I can find. Hmm. Yeah, I guess since we're talking about the ending, what you call release to me is 
utter sexual frustration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> because, yes, you can read it as Frederick cathartically deciding to be faithful, but it's also Frederick lying to himself because, yes, he doesn't have sex with Chloe, but he might as well have already. Because he shared emotional intimacy with Chloe. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh. And I think Romero is kind of touching on very classic romantic themes here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's distilled to such an intellectually stimulating way of, of addressing those themes. It's not just surface level, but it's also authentic and, and rooted in a sort of cinematic realism because of the amount of time you spend with the characters. Yeah. It's not broad strokes romantic drama. It's very specific and finely tuned. And you spend a lot of time with the characters to kind of get to know their relationship yeah. and to get to know how they think. That when Frederick chooses not to or chooses to do certain things, you kind of understand why he does it and also how he justifies why he does it. Well, it helps that you have, through the course of the film, you have a running narration from the voiceover, yes. The voiceover narration that is sort of explaining the way that he sees the world. And I think from the get-go, his explanation of why he like decides to like look at other women this way and like flirt with mm-hmm. other women, it was a very easy and fast way to get me to see where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And this is a man who's doing something that is by societal standards, not super kosher. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> <laughs> but I was really surprised at the speed at which I was able to be like, okay, yeah, cool. I understand. <laughs> okay, before we get too deep into yes. this, but I'm very excited to talk about this now because I think this is where Romer gets the most interesting when the interpretations are different or like the takeaways are different because he leaves quite a lot open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I think Love in the Afternoon is one that leaves the most to interpretation in the Six Moral Tales. Context for this, I do have a lot. Wilson kind of went into this. This is the last of the six moral tales, which are all about a man who has committed or professed his love to one woman, and then another woman comes along that kind of tests his resolve and his commitment to that first woman. Mm-hmm. And most of these films end back at status quo, if not all of these films end at status quo, which is that you're talking about the moral tales. Yes. Okay. They always somehow loop back to the first woman. The first woman isn't necessarily the quote-unquote conservative choice. She could be like a sexy choice or a little taboo choice. But in this one, it's an almost archetypal extramarital affair. He has a very loving family and then this woman comes in. This woman, Chloe, comes in and rocks his stable family unit. The second and arguably most important piece of background about this film is who plays Chloe. Zuzu. If listeners don't know, Zuzu is who? A... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who? Zuzu is a model, and she was essentially a fashion icon of the sixties and the early seventies huh. in France. So, if you were French, you knew who Zuzu was. She was very famous for how she looked. She was known for kind of having this androgynous look, which I think this film accentuates with its costume choices and essentially this film is saying Frederic talks about how he is able to resist all this women but what if that woman was 60s fashion icon Zuzu that everyone was in love with what happens (laughs) then so this film was written for Zuzu herself so Romare wrote this film for her and apparently one year before filming came up to her and said, I have a new project for you and I was going to write a TV series called The Adventures of Zuzu but then didn't, oh. which what if he did? And instead it made this, Love in the Afternoon. I have this quote from an interview with Zuzu. She said, Romare met with her and said, we'll make the film in March 1972 and you'll be naked in one scene and the camera will be there and it will all be fine. Which, what does that mean? (laughs) Weird. I think Zuzu was paraphrasing. This was years after the film came out. I think it's some kind of revival. Yeah, so I think that's the most critical piece of background about this film. The almost star persona of Zuzu, who was essentially a rising icon at this point. I can sort of, you can sort of tell though, the way that she holds herself in the scenes. She knows she's cool. She's something different. (laughs) And she, yeah. her face also reminded me a lot of Hilary Swanks, who was in oh, Million Dollar yeah. Baby and Boys Don't Cry. Sort of that similar androgynous mm. quality. Yeah. Also, to just kind of put into context where this film places in Romero's career. So I talked about his first film, The Sign of Leo, 1959. He made that, it bombed. And then when he came back to make his next project, he said, I'm going to make six movies, The Six Moral Tales. 
So mm. he immediately came in swinging. I was like, the next thing I'm going to do is six projects in a row. And essentially each one justified the next one. Wow. And he managed to make all six. And so, what's wow. the what is the time period that we're speaking of in which he released all six films? I believe it's in a decade. Like he makes two short films, right? Starts yeah. with The Bakery Girl of Monceau, and that was in 1963. And then Love in the Afternoon comes out in 1972. So literally, he said, "I'm going to come back and make a decade of six features," which is kind of wild that he committed to that. Romero was kind of a baller. <laughs> he was very wow. confident in what he was doing and people kind of ate it up. So that's um, Love in the Afternoon. So should we go back to the ending? <laughs> and talk about that. Or should we start somewhere else? Let's start sooner. You know, string listeners along hoping to hear the talk about the ending. <laughs> yeah. Let's start with the prologue. Yes. Because the prologue has one major oddity, which is the dream sequence. Oh. And if you didn't know the dream sequence where he talks about the amulet that he has, where he can mm-hmm. control the minds of women and make them sleep with him, mm-hmm. which sounds really kind of whack on paper, <laughs> but really gives you a sense of Frederick's worldview and the way that he looks at women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is kind of a, a film made by a man that critiques the male gaze, which is interesting. And so he has this fantasy where he stares at women, talks about how they're all beautiful to him because his wife's beauty enhances their beauty, some bullshit like that, and then (laughs) fantasizes a string of women and how he's able to steal them from their men or to like ask them to come to his room. And all those women are played by women that are in The Six Moral Tales. Oh. Yeah, so it's it's just a little bit of fan service if you're a Romare fan, which is kind of nuts. <laughs> That's great. If you recognize Beatrice Roman, who was in The Green Ray as an annoying friend, she was very young in this. She's like 18 in the scene. Wow. So, I don't know. I really love that scene just because if you're a fan of Romare, then Romare early on in his career gave you a little gift where he kind of celebrates all the women that he worked with by making them fall for one man, which I think is very strange. <laughs> there are some things going on in this prologue that are technically very smart. Mm. If you view this prologue as a way to help us understand Frederick's worldview, how he mm-hmm. views women, and the crisis of desire that he is in as a character at the top of this movie. The voiceover combined with the images that were shown of Frederick are really interestingly contrasted. Things like how he walks through a crowd convey a lot about him, and Mm -hmm. we see that change over the course of the movie. I'm also really interested in the editing in this sequence. So the way that glance object editing usually works is we see someone looking at something and then we see what they're looking at. There's a sequence when Frederick is sitting in a cafe and he's spying on a young woman who's waiting for her boyfriend who shows up and they start Mm -hmm. kissing. Frederick is looking at the woman. We see Frederick looking. We see the woman. We see Frederick looking. We see the boyfriend arrive. We see them start to kiss. Then we go back to Frederick and Frederick looks away from the couple. But instead of cutting to what Frederick is now looking at, diverting his glance away from the couple, we cut back to the couple yeah. who are still kissing. Yeah. It's just a smart, interesting little rule break of glance object editing in order to show us that even though Frederick is turning his gaze away, his fixation and it's his possessiveness wonderful. is still focused on this young woman and her boyfriend. And then, of course, there's this whole amulet sequence, which I find perhaps the ugliest and most unsparing look at <laughs> the male gaze and and how like male fantasy yeah. <laughs> yeah and and again possessiveness the way that whole thing is edited makes a joke out of frederick and his desire yeah. and his fantasy and ridicules him i think aptly so it's sort of like the ugliness of men this yeah. whole this whole movie yeah You'll see that in almost all of Romero's films, he has quite a disdain for men in romantic relationships. Beautiful. Mm. There are very few (laughs) men that you're like, oh, that's a nice dude in a Romero film. They're mostly quite self-justifying. They're always justifying why they're doing Mm -hmm. bad or unethical things. You see Frederick doing that in the narration. Constantly. (laughs) He's constantly doing that. And I like I would say that on a scale of one to ten of being a shitty dude, he's not that high on a scale, but he's one that you really understand. Mm. And you also understand how deluded he is in how he perceives himself. Through his internal monologue, you kind of hear that he thinks of himself as such a faithful 
and good husband. But then in a way, the movie is trying to think about what about men's thoughts? And of course, we're not supposed to be beholden to what our thoughts are or our fantasies are necessarily. Mm-hmm. In the end, your actions are what is important. But then yeah. the movie kind of asks the question of what if you could be held accountable for your thoughts? Mm. And then you kind of think about how that idea of an affair with a woman is that just physical he's kind of probing at this eternal question of the difference between an emotional and physical affair right Mm. which is part of a lot of romantic films and romantic narratives actually in general where people talk about emotional intimacy as also something that is akin to what we think of as being unfaithful which is more physical usually Mm. that's kind of why at the end of this film i feel like hmm (laughs) What's the point of all the justification when you've kind of gone through this entire thing with Chloe where you've kind of shown yourself to be weak already Mm. and the fact that you keep going back to her and the fact that you have to not just lie to your wife but also lie to yourself to justify your faithfulness. Some messy thoughts here but I think after watching it twice what I find really effective about this film is that once it sets up Frederick's psychology during certain scenes with Chloe I feel like I can already preempt his thoughts that he would use to delude himself. Yeah. To say that this interaction is okay Mm -hmm. I'm being faithful. Mm -hmm. And these are not necessarily narration that the film offers up, but you can kind of extrapolate how Frederick thinks. And I think that's how successful it is at immersing yourself in the way Frederick thinks. As you say, Ben, Romare does an incredible job of getting us to understand Frederick and his self-plication that he uses to justify his action. In the Green Ray episode, I mentioned that I hit a point when even though I didn't share Delphine's worldview... I hit a point when I sort of thought, yeah, I get it. I get what she's feeling. I found something similar in Love in the Afternoon when after that prologue, looking at Frederic was a feeling of, yeah, I get what he's thinking and what he's telling himself. Mm -hmm. It's a really ugly process, but I think Romare does an incredible job of being very direct and honest about what a character is feeling in order to get you on their page or understanding of their page. I think it's different, actually. I think with Green Ray, you are sharing an emotional wavelength with Delphine. Yes. And in Love in the Afternoon, you're more looking at Frederic and being asked to test your morals against his. Yeah, it's more of an understanding rather than an empathizing. I agree. But it's also okay because, like, I don't know. <laughs> it's sort of fun to, like, watch him, like, suffer and, <laughs> and, like, jump through loops in his head. It's just, like, so exciting because... <laughs> Romare writes his men so weak and it's <laughs> and and you just see how how these women they're just existing around him are causing him to like ponder or like just go into like mental breakdowns just thinking about what to do and if the things that he's then justifying every action that he does whereas with Chloe, when she explains her worldview in a few scenes or just like the way that she sees marriage or love, she sees it in such a complex way where she really like understands power implications and like possessiveness within relationships. And I really empathize with her wow. hmm. with the way that she explains to him like, oh, I'm never going to get married. Or she's like, oh, you and your wife can both be polyamorous. And I'm like, OK, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I completely see that. Like, it makes sense to me. It feels like you can relate to that character on a like an even level, whereas Frederic is like a is like a, a little child. <laughs> it would be easy for Romare to make Chloe just an obstacle or an object of the movie as something to continually challenge Frederic. Yeah, no, but she's so much more than that. Mm. Yeah, she has very clear wants and has very well defined boundaries that she protects for herself. She is by far a healthier character than Frederic <laughs> is. Such a beautifully constructed character. I have to say, every Romare film creates a character that, for me at least, I kind of fall in love with a little bit. <laughs> and Chloe is that character here. And Part of watching this as, I guess... It's Helen for me. Sorry, it's Helen for me. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but... <laughs> oh, oh man. <laughs> She's so We're gonna cool. going to fight, Eli, but... <laughs> she is cool. <laughs> he always writes his women as very intelligent and very articulate and never just as sexual objects. But here, I think watching this as a straight man, 
you kind of enter Frederick as a vehicle to kind of fall in love with Chloe. And then there's a moment of like, mm. bruh. Because right? <laughs> she essentially, in terms of the setup of the plot, puts herself in a position where it would be exceptionally easy for Frederick to be unfaithful to his wife with absolutely zero repercussions. Yeah. She's saying, I want to sleep with you, have your baby, and no one's going to know. Hands it to him on a fucking platter. And he still says no. And that kind of... When I say sexual frustration at the ending, it's partially because you're thinking, what's the point of all the self-delusion and the fact that you've already gone so far in the emotional unfaithfulness and then be given this kind of thing that the film kind of tempts me as a viewer to its immorality in a sense which i mm. think is crazy this is so funny watching eli <laughs> <laughs> look at you explaining the plot of this movie <laughs> it's like the duality of man right here <laughs> and wilson's just in the middle hanging out having a chill time yeah straight man off right there go so that that's kind of where my hit is at okay eli explain your <laughs> your side just ben as, as you were speaking i was thinking about that scene when frederick is finally about to sleep with Chloe. I completely agree that Frederick has already emotionally betrayed his wife by sharing a lot of intimacy with Chloe that he, for the time of his flirtation with Chloe, is not sharing with his wife, Helene. But taking into account what we've just discussed about the prologue and establishing the sick, possessive fantasy of Frederick, I think that scene where Frederick is about to sleep with Chloe is him finally realizing partially what he wants, partially what the nature of compromise is, and partially that he cannot have that perfect control over women. He's realizing that he's not going to be able to have the version of Chloe that he wants in his head, which is this whatever, perfect, sexy, fanciful thing that he can control, like an object, like a toy. He can't have that because that's not how relationships and people work. So he decides to accept and have compromise. I don't know. It, 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 I look, feel like it, I'm, I'm like understanding both of you so much more <laughs> through your readings of this movie. Um, <laughs> okay, but I'm going to pose an interesting question for you, Eli, specifically, which is that at the ending of this, I think the thing that I felt the most at the ending was how we just leave Chloe behind. Hmm. Like, the way that Frederick abandons Chloe is harsh and quite brutal. There isn't even a shot of her noticing that he leaves. Yeah. He chucks her aside and there's something cruel about that choice. And I think the first time I watched this, I was like, damn. Like, he just kind of did her dirty in that sense without doing the dirty with her. <laughs> but, uh, sorry, I had to go there. Um, yeah, so there's something where, yes, Frederick gets to retain his moral purity that he thinks he has but then doesn't have to deal with the fallout of what that does to the person that apparently is in love with him, which is Chloe. I agree that that's entirely wrong. What I was talking about a moment ago is sort of, I'm interested in parsing out Frederick's psychology in that mm. moment. And that moment when he repeats an action from earlier in the movie, when he's playing around with his wife and children and he puts <sighs> his shirt over his head. So good. In the moment with Chloe, when he does that, to her and then looks at himself in the mirror and then flees her room instead of sleeping with her. Yes, it is a sexual frustration because he's realizing he can't have his fantasy and perfectly own himself and others in the way that he wants to. Yeah. And I think that's what leads into his decision to trust his wife with his emotional intimacy once again and return to her and go with this idea of faith that I know in our last episode you presented as something important to Romare. Mm. It's not to excuse his actions in the movie because he ultimately does carry on an emotional affair, even if it does not become consummated. But there is that last line he doesn't cross. And if he chooses now to be, uh, no, but I don't <laughs> You're having your own moral dilemma right here. But this is why I think this is a great movie. Yeah, I agree. Because it creates this moral quandary. And Romero is very careful because he actually says that his moral tales are actually not about morality. They're more about moralizing. Hmm. Because they're not about to what yourself is... or to I mean to yourself and to others because they're not about what's right and wrong, but they're about how you figure out what's right and wrong to yourself and to yeah. your own principles and 
Romarian men do that. So My Night at Mods is all about this Catholic sense of commitment to somebody he has never met before. And then here it's just this commitment to this idea of only sleeping with one woman and kind of using your ability to reject your own sexual urges as a badge of how faithful you are, which seems a bit weird when you say it out loud. Because the idea is that you're supposed to be in love with one person because you're in love with that person only, not because you reject everyone else. And I think that's the kind of quandary that Romero is kind of presenting here. He does a very smart job of presenting Frederick's fantasies as wrong, but also the testing of his faith as something that's very human and down to earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a really interesting choice at the end of the movie, I think that Romare implies that Helen has had a similar test of her faith oh, in yeah. the same period, unbeknownst to Frederick. And that's why she's crying while he embraces her at the end. Wait, I need to ask both of you, why do you think you have that suspicion? I remember that from my first watch that I had this feeling like Helena had some sort of affair of her own in a sense. But then on my second watch, I was scrutinizing the scene and I was not sure why I had that feeling, but I knew the feeling was accurate. Whatever happened on her half of the story is less so the point in her crying in that moment, though it does still, of course, matter. To me, the takeaway in that moment is that they are both returning to the fold and choosing to trust each other emotionally once again and be more honest with each other. And now they're embarking on some work that they have to do to rebuild some trust because they both clearly have experienced a lapse in closeness and they both feel that distance. That's what mm. Helen's crying indicates. And now they're both choosing to embark on some work to become close again. Right. Work that begins with sex. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> Just a That's little the work. Cry sex. <laughs> Panning over to a lamp, you know. Doesn't Chloe say that she sees Helen with another man, like, a scene oh. before? Or, right. like, two scenes before? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that sort of, like, gets your brain He's starting to work you, in that right? direction. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's such it's, a it's just subtle and small and like stealthy way of kind of injecting that idea in your head and then Mm -hmm. you kind of form that conclusion on your own without him saying it and yes like i was marveling at how successful that was when i was just looking at the scene on its own and like the only clues are really just the way that helena reacts and the way she acts that give you a sense that incredible performance moment yeah that she feels some sort of guilt for something that she's not saying and that implies a mirror movie somewhere else, which I think is quite incredible. Yes. He should have made a Love in the Morning, a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, you know, Eleanor Rigby, him and hers. Oh. I think, like a lot of Romarin movies, this is a stealthy movie. It's very stealthy in its story and its messaging in certain ways, like in how its plot unfurls. The attraction between Frederic and Chloe is slow. I was struck by my second watch by how much disdain there was in their first two or three meetings. And then slowly that kind of friendly intimacy starts creeping in when Mm. she grabs his hand and he puts his arm around her shoulder. And then in your head, you're like, yeah, he's just thinking, oh, I'm, you know, she's just my girl dash friend, (laughs) right? (laughs) He's just doing that kind of like schoolboy thing. He's just like, yeah, she's my female friend. Justifying it to, to himself. Correct. And then slipping into something that's not just that. And I think the costume choices for Chloe, I love. I feel like you rarely talk about costumes about something that's quite banal in a sense, right? But the costumes here really help you sell Chloe's character as a woman that is actually different from the other women that Frederick is surrounded by. And it's not really a subtle choice. It's not a big choice, but it is a choice and it helps give you a sense that something is special about Chloe that you need mm-hmm. to pay attention to. In that scene where she first appears in a dress, you know yeah. something is going to happen. And something does happen where she starts a seduction and then gives her proposition that she wants to have his child, which I was like, what the fuck? Astounding. (laughs) (laughs) Just the final like 15 minutes of the movie is sort of like, you know, like in an Avengers movie where you have like <laughs> a like a, an initial battle and then like a, a mid-movie battle. And then at the end, the stakes get tripled, quadrupled. 
Like, this is exactly that. This is Zuzu throwing in the iron gauntlet, the iron fist, and being like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to snap what? I'm gonna snap a baby into existence. And I it's going to be I reject this yours. analogy. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the stakes are higher. And yeah. I think everything is multiplied. The emotions are multiplied. And the tension is multiplied. And then when things just start happening so much quicker, so like the fast. way he touches her is different even how the camera shows him touching her is so much more intimate mm. it's tighter on his hands as he caresses her body the, and these are very kind of peculiar shots in Romer's cinematography right yeah it's very mm. intentional camera choices that really just start telling you as a viewer like things are changing things are ramping mm. up like pay attention the narrative structure of this also kind of ramps up because you have a very mm -hmm. languid opening and second act in a sense which is in this film they denote very clearly as part one where the prologue you are introduced frederick takes about 20 minutes and then part one is about the burgeoning friendship between chloe and frederick throughout very kind of long conversations that have scenes of frederick doing work and also meeting with his own wife but then when you hit part two when his baby is born you start getting a series of scenes with chloe and they move by so quickly that the last 20 minutes seems to cover more time than the first hour of the film hmm. and the relationship between chloe and frederick ramps up not just in intensity but also in the amount of time you're covering where the intensity of the relationship really just amps up and the first time i saw this it really left me breathless because i was like oh my god this is something to happen the seduction is happening yeah. but then the seduction yeah. happens so fast and then you leave it so quickly also when frederick decides to leave hmm. mm -hmm. it kind of accelerates too quickly and then just burns out mm. and that pace really works and the slowness that you have in part one helps to leave you unprepared for that pace and what Romare is most known for is more so the part one slow languid yeah. pace and you know that he does that so well and usually for at least the Romare films that I've seen the whole movie is just like that so when you're going in and you're expecting a full movie like that, you settle into this pace, you sort of build these attachments to these characters in a similar way, and then he has you in his grip. That's the point where he's like, okay, I'm going to shake things around a little bit. <laughs> and then when that happens, you're like, oh shit, you know how effectively you have drawn me into this trap and now i'm just getting played around with as a viewer <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's really a filmmaker that knows what he does best and then utilizing that to his advantage to really throw his viewers in for a ride it's fantastic it's like watching a train wreck it's at first in slow motion but it gets increasingly faster yeah as we were recounting the steps in frederick and chloe's relationship I was starting to think a little bit about at what point is it wrong? At what point is it officially wrong? <laughs> I think the deceptive thing about the movie is that because it's all so low-key and honest and not presented necessarily judgmentally, it's more just the content itself is condemnable. I think it's kind of because we have this prologue to the movie where Frederick is presented so obviously as having bad inclinations and impulses, mm -hmm. It's wrong from the beginning. Ben earlier said that the initial interactions between Frederick and Chloe were disdainful, but I read every interaction between Frederick and Chloe as setting the groundwork for potentially more. And mm. is exploring the possibility of an affair the wrong thing from the get-go? Is that? I think that this movie's structure casts every step of the way as wrong in content, though, again, the style of the movie is at a distance and pretty interestingly presented naturally. You know who agrees with you, Eli? His secretaries. <laughs> That's my favorite little subtle touch in his film, which is that from the moment Chloe appears, everyone in the workplace is suspicious. And you see it in their eyes and the way they look, mm. they're like, who the hell is this? They are kind of the barometer because mm -hmm. they already think he's sleeping with her from the mm. moment she appears. They're like, who is this lady? And she keeps appearing over and over again. And then there's this one scene where Fabienne, Frederick's secretary, comes into poor tea and she's clearly quite unhappy. They laugh about Frederick and Chloe after they walk out of the office at one point. Yeah. 
Yeah. So <laughs> in a great. sense, they already think they're sleeping together, right? And so, yeah. hmm, sorry, you're going to say, Wilson? Well, I was going to contend with Eli's point about how it is stylistically naturalistic. Is that what Non-judgmental. You... Oh, non-judgmental. It allows you to engage with the content more directly and his actions as the thing that is casting aspersions rather than the camera tilting the scales. I, I do think that there are choice moments, especially whenever a camera moves in, oh. which I think is very, very yes. special for Romare. I don't think I've seen that happen in any other Romare film. You're right, Wilson. I'm thinking about the moment when we enter... Yeah, he wants to highlight things that are happening on screen. The moment when we enter Frederick's fantasy in the prologue oh. is marked by a zoom. Very unusual. Very yeah. unusual yeah. for yeah. Romare. The moment I wanted to talk about is when Chloe and Frederick are talking in the cafe and Chloe grabs his hand and yes. he, he starts like playing with her hand and his body is not in frame. It mm. is his hand. And then the camera tracks in and then she removes <laughs> her hand and then he removes his hand as well. And I'm like, oh, that's it. That's it. That's right there. I see you. Caught in 4K. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of these graphic choices that both of you are highlighting are such oddities in Romero's filmography. He tends to prefer medium to medium long shots. And he doesn't tend to do over the shoulder, which you do see in this film. There are a bunch of tight two shots that he uses, which I think are also very uncharacteristic, which really intensify the way that Frederic and Chloe look at each other. And so there's something much more directorial about how Romero is presenting their relationship compared to any other relationship that he has presented in his films. And yeah. there's something magical about its singularity in his filmography, mm. that yeah. there's something very intense and emotional between Frederic and Chloe that's a bit hard to explain, that you can only really show through image rather than the way they talk about stuff. You know how we always talk about in film class how... Directors use patterns, right? Stylistic patterns when they make movies. And I feel like this way of seeing it can be extended through not just one film, but a series of films. And the series of films could be the moral tales, right? right? And then you establish a pattern of these similar stories being told. Also, stop me if I'm talking out of my ass because I haven't seen any of the other moral <laughs> tales. But you have a pattern that's established of these stories being told and shot and paced in this certain way. And then he gets to the last one and he's like, I'm going to do something different. And what happens when a pattern, like a stylistic pattern is broken in a movie? It's showing that the director wants to say something different. And there's a shift. And this movie is the shift. It makes you sit up and take notice. Yeah. The six moral tales, I think, are slightly more conventional in the sense that they kind of hew closer, not close to, but closer to classical Hollywood standards of filmmaking compared to uh, his later work, which tend to be a little bit more naturalistic and in the way that he shows things. Like Green Ray has that kind of documentary aspect, almost cinema verite-like kind of style. And you have to note that Romero was a film critic and he was paying a lot of attention to the Hollywood filmmakers. He was writing essays about Hitchcock and Hawks and all, all these other filmmakers that were creating that classical Hollywood style. And so it feels like if I ignore the shorts, the moral tales start from something more art house and then move towards something more conventional in terms of classical Hollywood stylings. There's mm. more intentionality in using a zoom, in using shot reverse shot versus something in like The Collector, which is the third of the moral tales where there's a Antonioni sort of disaffectation. There's something mm. very cold about that. And the voiceover doesn't draw you in, it kind of pushes you out. And there's something somewhat more detached about the way he films in The Collector. Whereas Love in the Afternoon feels like if you took out all those languid talky scenes, could almost become a Hollywood movie. <laughs> and if I'm not wrong, this was remade in Hollywood at a certain point. <laughs> uh, let me check this. <laughs> with Chris Rock. Yes, with Chris Rock. What? It's called I Think I Love My Wife. It's kind of a prototypical romantic drama about an extramarital affair, but done in a pretty, and I guess a Romarian way. Like his name has kind of just become an adjective at this point. To note about the cinematography is cinematographer is Nestor Almendros. And if you don't know that name, the most important film in his filmography is Days of Heaven. Gorgeous movie. Beautiful movie. 
directed by Terrence Malick, and was infamous for being shot almost entirely at magic hour, which is the one hour period between dusk and night, where it's very difficult to shoot because you only have one hour of light every day. <laughs> I don't really know if this is a film that's emblematic of Almendros's work, but I think there are some gorgeous touches here that we've already talked about, which is the zooms and the kind of more intentional close-ups of Frederick's hands and all that. But there aren't the standard tricks of, say, lighting being used to inflect how we think about Frederick and his actions which I think is what I was getting at earlier a little bit with the note about naturalism. Mm. Even if there is unusual framing and camera movement to punctuate certain moments, the look of the movie is pretty down to earth and there's no like chiaroscuro lighting across Frederick's face to show that he's torn, that kind of thing, Mm. which might happen in a more forceful Hollywood movie. And aside from those zooms and fantasy sequences, there isn't a lot of messing with time. Things happen pretty realistically moment to moment, though there is a sort of glimpsy montage structure in the way in which we move between scenes and jump in time between scenes. And his narration is sort of the binding force that guides us through these scenes. Yes. I think what I'm trying to convey is that the director's control of time doesn't feel as strong as Frederic's view of time. Mm, That feels like what is moving the movie along and giving it that psychologically real feeling that I'm trying to put my finger on. But that is like sort of what I am starting to really love about Romare's films is that the way that he presents time is so varied like the green ray happens over the course of one whole summer and then the aviator's wife which i watched a few days ago takes place over the course of like one day Mm. and then this has a very unspecified time period but still the core idea in each of these movies is still so so simple Mm. and is teased out and explored in such a natural way in the continuation of scenes. I, I, I'm really starting to understand why people love him so much and why people <laughs> treat him as the blueprint of so much of the cinema that I love. Yeah, I, I love him. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. That's You've only watched, what, three films? <laughs> <laughs> You're making me think about the timelines of the other Romero films I've seen. It is interesting because he is very careful about how he's jumping time. With Green Ray, he has a very overt way of marking time with the date cards. Yes. And here he doesn't, but then he uses events to give you a sense of time, which would be the birth of his child. When he has a voiceover where he talks about how Chloe disappears for a week, and the absence of Chloe is kind of the starting point of when he starts to fall for her. Because we as an audience do not feel Chloe's absence because she appears in essentially the next scene. But we hear Frederic talk about her absence. Mm. So there is a sense of watching the film like it is a reading Frederic's horny diary. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas Green Ray occurs like not really a diary, although dates kind of have a diary aspect, but as an index of a summer that's a little bit more almost ethnological or something you know it's like here is this one white girl's summer (laughs) it's like a study and i think he's very careful in how he's employing the way his narrative is timed in all his films i think of a tale of winter which is which is using holidays as kind of a marker of time it essentially ends on christmas day and you're slowly moving towards christmas day but it's a little bit murky this is a bit of a segue but i think something interesting about romero is his interest in banality which you can see in how he shows people walking from place to place a lot and people talking about work and people just doing like normal shit, like having lunch. And I think these kinds of markers of mundane life help you place the story in a sort of reality where it doesn't feel like the scenes are just part of a movie, even though they are very constructed, but they make you feel like this is brewing on a timeline that is real life where people walk around. But then you also have patterning like with the staircase where he walks up to Chloe's new room and then he runs away down. And so those kind of motifs are embedded in the mundane, banal stuff. On my second watch, one of the banal things I was thinking about that kind of made me think, what the fuck is happening here is, why the hell did we follow Frederick shopping in the prologue? There's a very long scene where 
he goes around shopping looking for turtlenecks and then this one sales lady convinces him to buy this checkered shirt and then he's like i think i got swindled and bought the shirt what do y'all make of this i take a couple of things from this one is that it shows that for all his desire to be possessive he is more often swept by women as mm. he kind of gets swept by chloe later another is really smart costuming again it's not just for chloe but it's with frederick's outfit yeah. where earlier on as he's shopping a male sales clerk tries to get him to buy a blue turtleneck and Frederick says, I know it suits me, but I don't want to wear it. This is reflected by Helene earlier on wearing that same shade of blue and the walls in their apartment being blue. So it's another way of stating his crisis of domesticity. Yeah. Then this shirt later on makes an appearance with both Helene and with Chloe. And it's just a way of reminding you of Frederick's tendencies and establishing character crisis and flaws. I didn't really think much of it, but I agree with Eli. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's such a... Thanks. It's like barely a scene that you're like, what the fuck? Why am I watching yeah. him buy clothes? It's like, it's like nothing. If anything, I think my takeaway is that it's a bit of an analogy for Frederick's journey. He thinks of himself as a man of routine, but his routine is broken. And he kind of commits to that breaking of routine. And then every time you see him wear that ugly ass shirt, you're reminded that he changed something up. Mm. Then that kind of also makes you think, yeah, Chloe is also changing him up a little bit. Mm. Right. That's kind of how I read the scene the second time. I don't think it's that clear. Maybe it is because he rejects the guy, right? And mm. then he sort of gets talked into the girl. So it's just like he thinks he's making a free choice here. Like <laughs> he is a, being a free thinker, which he proclaims to be at the mm -hmm. start. He's like, that's right. why I can look at all these women. But then he's <laughs> like at the end of the, he's just lured into another woman. It's not his free choice. Yeah. It's not free choice at the end. That's true. He doesn't choose Chloe, but he does still choose no. Helena. There's something very intimate about that scene in the dressing room where the woman is buttoning him up, where you're like, what the heck is going on here? There's something flirtatious happening in that dressing room also. Yeah. Agreed. That's my problem. He's not hot enough to, oh, he can't. <laughs> like, that's not, it's not fair. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, he's not hot. He's like, it's, it's not. It's the 70s. Not, uh, like, his hair looks bad. Like, he, the hair oh, is bad. My, oh, geez. Like, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> It's too powerful. <laughs> this aspect of his weakness that we're talking about, I think is something that he has to learn over the course of the movie and realizes when he comes to the brink of physically sleeping with Chloe, even though, again, he has already emotionally had an affair. And you know what? Physically, too. He's also kissed Chloe and like oh, yeah. held her hand. So anyway. <laughs> Although, okay, to be fair, based on the Romero films, French people are always cheating on each other. That it almost seems like that's normal. <laughs> this is my understanding of French culture as well. <laughs> oh, oui, oui. By learning more about himself and his weakness, the thing that I find reassuring about the ending where he talks to Helene instead of doing the final act on his feelings of sleeping with Chloe is that he is admitting to his wife his fear and anxiety about being alone, which I think is close to the heart of his problem. By doing that, he's building a bridge to his wife. And that act, he's making a choice to try to do some reparative work with his wife. That's where I see some hope in the ending. You see this ending a lot closer to the Green Ray than... <laughs> Any of us, I just do not think that this is an optimistic slash cathartic ending. Interesting. Mm. But despite my disagreement with Eli earlier, I agree with what you're saying right now also. Because I wrote this down in my notes, which is, is this a film that is making me empathize with a Romarian man? Mm. Because I think that's a tiny miracle. Because <laughs> at the end of this, despite how bullshit he is, right? Yeah. Like the bullshit things that he says to himself to, and to other people. Yeah. That final scene is emotional. Not in itself, but for me, feeling empathy for Frederick and about the relationship he has with his wife. There is something, maybe it's just the performance in that scene is so good, but I feel hardened by their reconnection despite my sexual frustration and also <laughs> my feelings for where Chloe's left. I still feel like in that scene that something is being mended. Yeah. And so the final scene kind of has its cake and eats it too. And I think that's kind of crazy. If it's an empathy that we have for Frederic, I think it's a critical empathy. Mm. We understand right. his process. And also, Romare leaves us ample room to question that process, to say the least. Right. 
I don't know. I was just like this pathetic man. <laughs> <laughs> this entire movie. <laughs> Very valid like, reading. Like, I understand you, but you're still at the end of the day, pathetic man. <laughs> also true. I am very excited that we have one more <laughs> Romare episode. Oh boy. If I could choose, I would go with more, but we must move on to other directors, but yeah. I, I'm very excited. I'm glad to have two picks. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely hear what you guys are saying about the more Romare you watch, the more you get him. I have really enjoyed both movies so far, or in, enjoyed might not be the right word for love in the afternoon <laughs> because it's, it's harrowing. I felt emotionally connected to both movies and gotten a lot out of both movies. And I'm still thinking about both of them days out from watching. So, oh yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to watch one more and then to continue to watch more Romare. Yeah. I think he's so good at using dialogue as action. Because, mm. you know, they always talk about show, don't tell, and they always imply that dialogue is tell. But with Romare, dialogue is not tell, dialogue is show, which I think is a very difficult tightrope to balance on. And I think this is one of the films that he has that is very good at showing you character psyche. And I love that you can have so many, not necessarily interpretations, but different reactions to this mm. film. And he is non-judgmental, even though his men are objectively weak and cowardly and lame. But that's just the character type. He's not judgmental about that. <laughs> mm. To give some suggestions of things to watch if you like this. Oh. Please. I would say go watch The Six Moral Tales. So meaning watch the two that are more well-known, which is Claire's Knee and My Night at Mods. Both are very much about men justifying shit. Claire's Knee sounds creepy. Oh yeah, it's creepy as hell. But it has a reason to be creepy. It is about the creepiness. But definitely a little hard to watch in this day and age especially. But both are really good at showing you some annoying men. <laughs> And if you want to try something more detached, art house, then there's The Collector, which has two of the worst Romarian men ever. Definitely. <laughs> I think ranking at the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> yeah. Easier to watch. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I need a break from <laughs> Romare men. You only need a, like, you need to sandwich them in. in yeah, between. that's the reason I chose this one, because that's why I say he's one of the better ones, in a sense. But what's nice is that we're going to move back into the comedies and proverbs with its final film, Boyfriends and Girlfriends, or alternate title, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. I Somebody love told that. me that you had a boyfriend. French a title is The Friend of My Friend is My Friend. Great title. <laughs> or The Friends of My Friends Are My Friends, which is my favorite Romero film. Oh. So I'm very excited <laughs> to talk about it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. And give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. And join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you again to Justine Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Zuzu forever. Yeah. <laughs>